Tonight, high school girl Lori Strode will have to fight for her life. She's going to get attacked by the murderer Michael Myers, and she's going to find out that she too is capable of picking up a knife. Tonight, her life is going to change forever. But for now, Lori's just in another boring English class, doodling in her notebook, half listening to the teacher. So innocent, she doesn't even realize her killer is studying her outside. You see, fate caught up with several lives here. No matter what course of action Collins took, he was destined to his own fate. His own day of reckoning of himself. Then Lori looks out the window and sees a man in a mask. Lori looks away, but the man is so strange that she can't stop herself looking again. He's still there, still staring. Answer the question. Oh, um, Costain wrote that fate was somehow related only to religion, whereas Samuels felt that, well, fate was like a natural element, like earth, air, fire, and water. That's right. Samuels definitely personified fate. In Samuels' writing, fate is immovable. Safe from the teacher, Lori looks out the window again. The man in the mask is gone. Fate never changes. Lori Strode has no idea what's coming. And you know who else has no idea what's coming? Every single person on the set of Halloween in 1978 when they shot that scene. When John Carpenter called cut, like no one, no one, not the actors, the extras, the camera crew, the customers, the producers, no one, not even him could have guessed that this no-budget horror film made by a no-name director with a handlebar mustache who tells everyone he'd rather be filming cowboy stuff would become the most profitable indie movie ever and scare audiences to death. When the movie came out and I saw it in a packed theater in Hollywood in 1978 in October, on Halloween, I think I went on a Halloween night, And it was a packed theater. And right at that moment, halfway through the walk across the street, a woman stood up in the middle of the theater and screamed out loud, Don't go in there! But of course, Laurie Strode goes in there. Michael Myers was Laurie's fate. I'm Amy Nicholson, and on this episode of Halloween Unmasked, we're going to talk a lot about fate, about how a group of young kids made a huge hit that changed the direction of their lives on accident. We're going to retrace the steps that got John and his star Jamie Lee Curtis and their friends here to this film set shooting a movie that wasn't anyone's passion project but would wind up making them famous forever, a movie that would stalk their legacies almost like Michael Myers himself. After all, John is the guy who not that long ago said that, quote, horror directors are a little above pornographers. I got in this business to make westerns. I didn't want to make horror movies. Horror directors don't get respect. And I know that you're listening to this and you're like, but I love scary movies. And that is awesome. And I love them too. I mean, part of why we're here right now in this moment, you and me, is that we believe that horror directors deserve that respect. But it's also true that only one horror film has won a Best Director Oscar. That's Silence of the Lambs. And honestly, I think that's only kind of a horror film. It's easier to scare an audience than to make it laugh, you know. It takes, <laughs> it takes incredible skill to, to concoct a good visual joke, you know. Uh, but I think, you know, anybody who's kind of seen a lot of movies could, could make a semi-credible <laughs> imitation of a horror movie. In the 70s, most scary flicks were bloated and predictable. 
I mean, yes, The Exorcist and Carrie and Rosemary's Baby were really good, but there's a reason why those exceptions just jumped in your head and not the hundreds of others that John Carpenter wanted nothing to do with. I think it it became sort of a debased form, but all it takes is one good one to kind of turn people around. That's going to be Halloween, because here's what happened when it came out. The reaction from audiences was kind of unbridled hysteria. <laughs> People were really... There was major, major screaming reported in the, in the theaters. But I think people, you know, I think audience, audiences went back, I think, to see it again because they loved being scared by it. But to John, Halloween is not this movie he's been dreaming of making for years. It's just a stepping stone, a quickie job to get him his next job. It's not supposed to define him forever. I mean, you could have also said, you're going to make this fabulous Western when you get older, and I may have been more excited about that. But uh, it's, I don't know if I would have believed anybody. His teenage star, Jamie Lee Curtis, felt the exact same way. I mean, Jamie Lee was not trying to make horror movies. She didn't even like horror movies. Halloween was just the first movie anyone had ever asked her to do. And to be honest, she barely even cared if it was good. A bunch of kids babysitting, blah, 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 small town, blah, blah, blah. No one involved with the movie Halloween, no one had a clue that 40 years later we'd be talking about that movie. I've been talking to everyone who made the movie, and they all say the exact same thing. It is insane that Halloween became a big deal. So how did John end up making the most revolutionary horror movie of all time? In this episode of Halloween Unmasked, we're going to find out how the guy who wanted to make classy cowboy movies turned into the Prince of Darkness. Last episode ended with John leaving his log cabin in Bowling Green and his best friend and bandmate Tommy Lee Wallace to go to film school at the University of Southern California. John landed at LAX with two suitcases, one Los Angeles map, and a ton of ambition. My goal was to become a, a, a movie director and a working director. I just wanted to make movies. I, I, at that point, at any point, I would have made anything just to make a movie. But John was so naive about L.A. that he tried to walk to USC from the airport. He had no idea it would take five hours. When John Carpenter arrived at USC, though, his timing was perfect. There was this clique of slightly older students, George Lucas and Robert Zemeckis, and a future Apocalypse Now screenwriter John Milius, and their buddies, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, and they were all about to make Hollywood pay attention to a new generation. But it was the old generation that John worshipped, Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock, Howard Hawks, these giants that we think of today as existing in black and white. When John arrived in L.A., they were still alive in full color, and they were at USC too. Oh, it's amazing, the classes we had down there. Arthur Knight used to have a Thursday night class where he'd show a, a recent movie and he'd have the director come down. And then we'd have film festivals and various people would come down. And it was amazing to, see, to meet them. Amazing. Wells and Hitchcock and Hawks, John Ford and Frank Capra, John Carpenter was surrounded by his heroes, by the directors whose ideas he would put into Halloween. But he was too shy to open his mouth. Too scared. Too scared. I asked Howard Hawks a question, but it was, uh, I was too scared. You know, I, was, I, I, was, I wasn't sure of myself yet. Uh, I just tried to soak in everything I could. Around his classmates, John's silence was a strength. He had this cowboy aura, laconic, focused, the guy you wanted to impress. John kept his mouth shut and his eyes open. John just was the one. He had kind of more of a vision of, of, of 
seen a career, I think, than anybody else. Kind of knew what he had to do in order to to sustain it and to motivate himself. You know, John was, you know, always doing really good good work, you know. So he was known as, you know, someone that was very talented and, and uh, he had a great eye. That's classmate Nick Castle, the third best friend who had helped John make Halloween. Nick is lanky, curly brown afro, and Nick's a Hollywood kid, the son of a choreographer who designed dance numbers for Fred Astaire. Nick was a music geek like John, and so when Tommy got to USC too, the three guys hung out all the time. They would go downtown and watch dumb kung fu movies. I'll let Tommy explain. We liked the cheaper stuff. We liked the the stuff that was made on a low budget and just got by on clever ideas and action and grittiness. Afterwards, they'd grab food at this greasy restaurant that had a 22-foot fiberglass statue of a man with a rooster head holding a bucket of fried chicken. It was so stupid, we thought it was the most hilarious thing we'd ever seen. And now that John and Tommy had Nick, they formed a new band, which they called the Coupe de Vils. Yeah, we were just three friends. Uh, Nick had this incredible voice, and just amazing voice. And I not so much. Let's stop John right there, because here's the thing about John. He's just not that reliable when he describes himself. Okay, let's play some Coupe de Vils, one of their 80s songs that sounds very 80s. The first voice is John, and the second voice is Nick. You can feel the wind is rising, baby, now the truth is here. Out of the darkness coming, baby, all the things you feel. Nick is incredible, but John's not bad. He's just his own worst critic, which is really important to keep in mind for this whole episode. I mean, John used to keep this doll of an old, ugly woman in his kitchen just so that every time he thought he did something good, he would pull the string and she would stick out her tongue and laugh at him. Okay, so now that you have that dark insight into John's brain, here's what he said when I asked him about his first USC film, an eight-minute short about a man in a mask who follows a girl home to kill her. You're not going to see it, I hope. No, it was a student film. Student films are notoriously bad. Okay, all of them are bad because they're student films. Because we're all learning. Yeah, we're learning. So, you know, some of the shots in it are out of focus. And I mean, come on, no. No, no, no. People make a big deal out of that movie, but it doesn't, It no, let's don't watch it. I'm not even going to tell you the title. I'll tell you the title. It's called Captain Voyeur. And if it sounds a little like Halloween, well, yeah. Then John helped make a student film called The Resurrection of Bronco Billy that won the Academy Award for Best Short. Winning an Oscar two years after you moved to L.A. to make movies sounds like a big deal. But didn't you become a big deal pretty soon? Because you helped win an a Oscar. big deal. <laughs> but you helped win No, I, I, was, I stood around in my cynical way and made fun of it. Nick Castle went to the Oscars, but John stayed home. Well, it seemed like a big deal. And also, I remember thinking afterwards that, hey, that we want to have you more now. Come on, all the studio, everyone has to come and talk to us. No one came and talked to us. No one cared back then about a short. So maybe John was right to sound cynical. I mean, George Lucas had an idea. He was turning his USC short, THX 1138, into a feature. John decided that's what he'd do, too. I mean, it's Hollywood. Who needed a diploma? You don't graduate. Because of French classes? No, I don't graduate. No, no, no. And I, and I failed ancient history class because I couldn't take it. It was a horrible class. I didn't want that. I wanted movies. I wanted to learn cinema. So John spent four years making Dark Star, the movie that he was sure would be his big break. 
Darkstar is a stoner lampoon of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's got this crew of dumb astronauts, and they're running around with rubber chickens, and Darkstar is not good. But at least there's an alien played by a beach ball. When I brought you on the ship, I thought you were cute. Nick played the beach ball. I, I helped on that movie as an assistant this, assistant that, the beach ball monster, you know. Uh, whatever they needed, it was it was fun to do, and the, and they um, and you know it was always good to help your buddies anyhow. So uh, and you you gain experience. Tommy was there too, building sets, painting backgrounds, carrying lights, being a friend. But when Darkstar flopped after all of that work, John got even more cynical. He wrote a few scripts and he started to treat Hollywood like a job. His next movie, an urban western called Assault on Precinct Thirteen, is actually good. Only no one in Hollywood watched that either. John did get something out of it, though, because he met the two people who most helped him make Halloween. The first is producer Erwin Yoblins. Halloween was his idea. Erwin was born in Brooklyn during the Great Depression. He sold sweaters, and then he started to sell movies. I mean, Erwin had a talent for figuring out how and where a movie could make money. And he climbed his way from booker to boss to independent producer. And, you know, I got to the point I started to believe I was really an oracle. I started to give suggestions... <laughs> One day, Erwin gets a call from this agent who wants him to meet this guy named John Carpenter, who had just wrapped a movie he was then calling Siege. Erwin watched it and saw this John guy was great with a camera. He could make something look good for super cheap. And he'd even done his own music, which was awesome, so Erwin thought he could do something with Siege. He started by renaming it to Assault on Precinct 13. And he thought he could do something with John, too. I mean, this kid was talented, even though he barely talked and he kind of looked like a weirdo. John in those days weighed about... 80 pounds, he was all skin and bones and hair. John liked that Erwin believed in him. No one else did. Plus, Erwin was a fighter. So Erwin uh, was a famous pirate hustler. He would hustle around trying to get projects going. He was a street kid, right, from New York? Or? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was rough and tumble. When American audiences ignored Salt on Precinct 13, Erwin took the movie to Europe, where he met a British buyer named, and I am not kidding, Michael Myers. I mean, Michael Myers... God rest his soul, was just a nice Jewish guy, film distributor, who probably would have gone to his grave totally innocuously. And now he's folklore. Michael Myers got assault into film festivals, and he made it a small hit in Europe. So Erwin needed to make another movie with John, like now, while he was still cheap. What kind? I mean, not another modern Western, because nobody really wanted to see that. And not a drama, and not a comedy, because while those get respect, they aren't universal. You know, people don't laugh and cry at the same stuff. But, but if you go up to somebody, to those same people, and go boo behind them, you will get a Pavlovian response. They'll all react. So on his plane back to Los Angeles, Irwin brainstormed a horror movie that he knew he could sell. And he knew who it should star. Young girls. Normal girls. Babysitters. I, I thought everyone's been a baby or had a baby or been a babysitter. So somebody, everyone's had a connection to that, to, be, to a babysitter. And to me, they were very vulnerable. Even pornography uses today the babysitter motif as, 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 a, as, as a staple. Babysitters are vulnerable. Uh, yeah, porn, cool. I mean, you know, put it that way, and it is amazing that there are not more boobs in Halloween. But porn and horror do both hit the lizard part of the brain. And The Babysitter Murders is a title that can sell tickets, but it needs a twist. And then I, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, and to this day I tell this story, I've never told it a thousand times, Halloween popped right into my mind. We'll do a movie on Halloween night, the scariest night of the year. 
Six miles in the air, Irwin knew that he had an idea that could make millions. He'd call it Halloween. He had to call John. Well, the plane landed, and I rushed home, and I, as soon as I got in the house, I went up to the bedroom. My wife was almost asleep, and I, I got him on the phone. I gave him a few lines. He said, say no more. I understand this. This is great. Let's meet tomorrow. John met Irwin at his favorite meeting place, the Hamburger Hamlet on the Sunset Strip, where he could buy a burger for two bucks. John was interested. I mean, he wanted the same thing that Irwin wanted. He wanted a movie that people would actually watch. He was tired of being ignored. But John had conditions. All, I didn't care about money. I just wanted control. I wanted the chance. That's what I wanted. So we, did, we made it. Here's what control meant to John. One, he wanted Final Cut. Two, he wanted to do the score. And three, he wanted his name in the title. Not Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween. I said, John, if you can do this movie for 300000 bucks, you can have anything you want. Because quite frankly, I just thought of it as a movie that we were going to make and make, make some money with and... Who cared what his name, you know, a year from a year later, who would know anyway, you know? Oh, and four. John wanted his girlfriend, Deborah Hill, to produce. Deborah Hill was the second important person that John met making Assault on Precinct 13. She was the script supervisor. Deborah was a New Jersey girl. Tiny blonde, gigantic curls, gigantic personality, gigantic platform sandals. Like John, Deborah Hill had moved to L.A. to make movies, and in the 70s, that meant putting up with dudes who called her honey and assumed she was the makeup girl. Deborah was warm. She was loyal, she was detailed, she was creative. Her voice was soft and a little nasal. New Jersey. John liked Deborah's brains. Well, he liked her whole thing. He was tall and quiet, she was short and loud. He played music, she loved to dance. They fell in love. Deborah had been on a lot of sets and done a lot of little jobs and made a lot of friends, but she hadn't gotten that much respect from the men in charge. And there were no women in charge. Deborah will change that. She was really bright and uh, really knowledgeable about low-budget filmmaking. But she needs that first break, and when John looked at Deborah, he saw the producer. She was uh, one of the first female producers like this, and especially difficult in those days. It just wasn't, you know, there weren't too many of them. She was a trailblazer. So John's last condition before he agreed to make Halloween was that his brilliant girlfriend Deborah would co-write and produce. And I said, yeah, what's her experience? She'd had none. But Irwin agreed, if John agreed, that he and Deborah would make Halloween like Psycho and The Exorcist. No blood, lots of suspense. Oh, and... They both had important staircases. I said, put a staircase in this movie. Staircases are scary. Because you don't know what's at the end of the staircase. (laughs) John was already thinking Hitchcock. He wasn't really thinking about staircases, but whatever. Even in the 70s, though, $300,000 wasn't a lot of money. I mean, The Exorcist cost 40 times as much. So John had to make Halloween on the cheap. Luckily, he had Deborah Hill, Nick Castle, and Tommy Lee Wallace. John and Deborah wrote the script fast, and they put in everything Irwin wanted. The babysitters and the bloodlessness, the staircase, and almost nothing else. They kept it simple. A boy kills his teen sister, escapes 15 years later, and stalks three high school girls just because. Not because he's a vampire, not because of 50s B-movie toxic waste, not because of Satan, just because. Because sometimes people kill people just because. Because the evil that John saw in the civil rights era Deep South that we talked about in episode one, that evil cannot be rationalized. And don't worry, we're going to get to the whole evil psychology of Michael Myers in the next episode. But today isn't about why. It's about how. How did these kids make Halloween for no money and how did it become such a huge accidental hit? So hold on to your knives. We will tear through it right after this break. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. And I know that since you're listening to this, you're probably a well-listened kind of person. You listen to a lot of stuff. You got good ears. Well, then you are going to love digging into Audible this fall. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, and now they have launched Audible Originals, where they have awesome custom-made content just for members. Every month, if you're an Audible member, you can get one credit good for any audiobook that you choose, plus two Audible Originals from a changing selection that you cannot get anywhere else. No other online book service has this. Audible members can also get access to audio fitness and health workouts because, yes, being a person who loves books can also make you healthy. Plus, with Audible, your books are yours to keep. So if you have picked out something giant and massive, don't worry. You have no time pressure. You can get through it, and you can listen to it again. I love audiobooks. I've been on a major audiobook kick this entire summer and fall. It is the absolute best thing to do when you're, like, cooking dinner, making coffee, living your life, also getting in some awesome literature. What I've been listening to lately, I have tons of recommendations. First, I really want to recommend Philip Ross' The Plot Against America, which has blown my mind, and I've been recommending that audiobook to everybody. I just finished The Silent Wife, which is this psychodrama about a married couple who have major problems dealing with their relationship. The chapters alternate from his to hers. It is a portrait of two people who should not be married, definitely not to each other. And I just started for fall this Irish spook story called Darling Jim, where it's about this family of sisters. Everything goes very wrong at the beginning, and now we're figuring out how. So if you have audiobook recommendations, tell them at me. I am, like, all about audiobooks right now. So join me in being a person who gets a lot of literature through your ear holes. Start your 30-day trial of Audible right now, and your very first audiobook is free. So go to audible.com slash unmasked or text unmasked to 500-500. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash unmasked or text unmasked to 500-500 and get started. Let's all have a book club this fall. It'll be fun. And now, back to Halloween Unmasked. We're back, and we are now on the set of Halloween, where even the word set feels a little bit overblown for what is basically one Winnebago. So let's make a movie. The first thing the crew had to do was to get over the idea that John's girlfriend was their producer. And as Tommy explains... If you didn't know Deborah, or you didn't know anything about the show, you would have said, oh man, nepotism out the wazoo. This is going to be a disaster. The only thing was... Deborah knew exactly how to produce a movie. She was forceful. She was visionary. She was unafraid. She was courageous uh, and tremendously energetic. Deborah was a powerhouse. She was tremendous. Every movie needs a Deborah. Something horrible went wrong, and I was standing there just losing my temper. And I think I said to somebody, who the hell did that, did this, whatever it was. I needed somebody to blame. And Deborah stepped up before I finished my sentence and said, it doesn't matter, let's fix it. And that's Deborah Hill in a nutshell. They couldn't afford to film Halloween on location in the Midwest, but Tommy realized that Pasadena could double for Illinois if you shot around the palm trees, which, well, bless their hearts, they tried. Tommy even found a hundred-year-old abandoned house for the old Myers place where Lori slips that key under the doormat. All he had to do to decorate it was add a broken rain gutter. There was no money to build sets, so when Lori Strode is hiding in a closet, she is hiding in a real closet. And the furniture in Lori's bedroom actually belonged to Tommy and his girlfriend Nancy Kyes, who plays Lori's happy-go-lucky best friend Annie. 
the one who Michael stabs in the car. Now Tommy had to make California in April look like the Midwest on Halloween. So Tommy bought three trash bags of leaves from a florist and he would throw them in front of fans so that audiences could imagine a crisp fall breeze. The leaves cost a huge chunk of the budget, so between scenes, Tommy would rake them up and use them again. So you're recycling all the leaves? <laughs> Absolutely. They were, they were like gold. California in April didn't have pumpkins either, so Tommy found these giant green South American squashes and he spray painted them orange. Those were precious too. John was directing, Deborah was producing, Tommy was being the world's best Boy Scout, and Nick Castle was the killer. I said, well, why don't I hang out? And he said, okay, well, listen, if you hang out, why don't you be in the shape? I'll pay you $25 a day. <laughs> you run around with a mask on, and you're always here. I said, that's a great idea. No one, like, auditions to play Michael Myers. Nick Castle just did it because he and John and Tommy were always doing everything together. I can't act at all, you know. I'm a, a horrible in front of the camera. But you put a mask on me, I'm fine, you know, because you don't have to see my lips trembling or, or things like that. But um, that, I think there's there's a, an attempt to make some lore out of that, that, you know, the, the way that I move had some kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, some background in the fact that my dad was a dancer. Do you not agree with that? I, do I not agree? No, I, I don't agree. I, I, I was, I, I, you know, if, if, you know, you do things, of course, subliminally, too. So perhaps there's something to it. I just have never done it as a study. And now Halloween needed its Laurie Strode, a scream queen for a new generation, a modern-day descendant of Psycho's Janet Lee. Why not the actual daughter of Janet Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis? I wanted Jamie Lee Curtis for one reason only. I didn't, know, I didn't even know what kind of an actress she was. Uh, because I, wanted, I had this idea of these two photographs together. I wanted a picture of her mother in the shower and a picture of Jamie Lee in a similar situation. Irwin got those photos and sent them to a newspaper wire that printed them all over the country. The daughter of Psycho is the 70s new scream queen. Now, I often tell people there are two kinds of ways to sell a movie. There's publicity and there's advertising. Publicity is far better... And it's cheaper. It costs nothing. Well, it cost Jamie Lee a little dignity. She was trying to prove she was her own person. But that's a story for a future episode. For now, what's important is that Jamie Lee is 19 and the daughter of not just one movie star, but two. Janet Lee and Tony Curtis from Some Like It Hot. And also, when she was born, her parents were two of the biggest celebrities in the world. Jamie Lee had a lot of complicated feelings about that, but she decided to become an actress anyway. Which, when she met John, wasn't working out so great. I was hungry for every single job I ever got. And so the minute I got a job, I didn't care what it was. Jamie Lee had just been fired from a TV show based on one of her dad's most popular movies, which, you know, like, ouch, that's a little bit personal. That's how fate got her here. I just remember how small the offices were. I just, I had, again, been at Universal where everybody had big offices and there were towers and, you know, it was that. And here, were, here was this little low-budget horror film with two tiny... I mean, tiny little rooms. Jamie needed respect more than money. I mean, Halloween was the first movie she had ever been offered. She didn't even care that she hated horror films and that the salary was only $8,000. What she needed was for Hollywood to see her, the real actress her, and not her parents. So John had his Laurie Strode, an actress who was both halves of his perfect Howard Hawks star. 
One part, the quiet, strong, all-American Bogart, and the other part, the lanky, brilliant Lauren Bacall, just in one body in Jamie Lee Curtis. And his camera work was a tribute to her mother's two most famous films, the bloodlessness of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and the beautiful opening single-track shot of Touch of Evil, a shot that starts with a couple and ends with their death. John wanted to open Halloween the same way, but that tracking shot was so complicated, he decided to do it last. So on John's very first day, he shot Lori, leaving her normal home. Don't forget to drop the key off By the way, the that brown Cadillac that her dad is getting into is John's. And if the camera showed you the back of it, you could see John's bumper sticker. God bless John Wayne. Then Lori walks to school with the boy she babysits, and they plan what should be a normal night. Can we make jack-o'-lanterns? Sure. Can you watch the monster movies? Sure. Be a read to me? Can we make popcorn? Sure, sure, sure. Normal with one difference. You better hurry up. How come you're walking to school this way? My dad asked me to. Why? I have to drop off the key. Why? Because he's going to sell a house. Why? Because that's his job. Where? The Myers house. John Carpenter's creepy music cuts out so you can hear someone breathing. So that from inside the Myers house, you can hear Michael Myers. Or really, Nick Castle. You just step up to a microphone much like the one I'm in front of right now and you go... (sighs) Little lower. (sighs) Things like that. And that was day one. Nothing too stressful unless you're 19-year-old Jamie Lee Curtis on your very first day ever of your very first movie and you are freaked out that you suck. Now, I am sure any actor listening to this will understand people get fired. People get fired all the time after their first day of work or second day. Like, like it's not unheard of. Just like her character, Laurie Strode, later in Halloween, she came home and the phone rang. Hello? And I remember just being terrified to go pick up the phone. And I kind of like dreading walked over to it and picked up the phone. Hello. And it was John and, and you know, he's, he's a gentleman and he's from the South. So he says, hey, darling, it's John. I just wanted to tell you how great today was and how thrilled I am with what we did. And you're fantastic and I'm so happy. And, you know, that just doesn't happen. That just does not happen. And it has certainly never happened to me again. Wow, John, what a sweetheart. What motivated you to pick up the phone? What motivated you to pick up the phone? Uh, Deborah Hill suggested it. Said, you know, it'd be really nice to call Jamie. Because we both, I was living with Deborah at the time. We were both really uh, taken with her performance. But I wouldn't have thought about it on my own. But she said, well, call her. Okay, so I called her. Uh, Yeah, John is not an incredibly emotional guy, as you've probably figured out. He's not the kind of director who wants to have long conversations about motivation. John's a visual, big-picture thinker, and what matters to him isn't how his actor feels or whatever they're using to make themselves cry and scream. To him, an actor is basically like a set or a prop. His job is to pick the right one and trust that they'll figure it out. John was so casual on the set that he chain-smoked during takes. I mean, so much that you can see some of the smoke waft into one scene. But the vibe on the set was just chill. I mean, the oldest person was like the 31-year-old cinematographer, and everyone else was in their 20s or younger. Deborah's friend dropped off bagels and coffee in the morning, and during lunch break, people took naps in the grass. John would prank people, so as payback, one day somebody brought him a potty chair on set and wrote director on the back. 
This movie is supposed to make film a history. Nothing's going on except kids playing pranks, trick-or-treating, parking, getting high. I have the feeling that you're way off on this. You have the wrong feeling. Well, you're not doing very much to prove me wrong. What more do you need? There were just a bunch of hippie-looking kids making a babysitter murders movie that everybody thought would be at best pretty good, and maybe this time some people would see it. John wasn't letting a dark star happen again, spending four years of his life making a passion project that flopped. Halloween was Erwin Yablin's quickie cash grab, a 20-day shoot, and if it went well, great. And if not, well, John had just agreed to make a TV movie about Elvis. I don't think any of us saw beyond that, that it was going to become a classic and, you know, that special. What, but what was clear to me was that John was on a roll. He was really feeling his power as a director. John had waited 10 years for his big break. That's 10 years of disappointments, 10 years of frustration. Now he was making the audience wait. John realized that waiting is what makes a horror director powerful. The audience kind of knows what's coming, but they don't know when. So he made them wait as Lori takes her time walking back and forth to school. To wait as Lori babysits her kids, as her friends across the street make popcorn and have sex and do laundry and die. To wait over an hour and 15 minutes for Lori to discover their dead bodies. For that awful moment when Lori's normal life will never be normal again. Something else was dying. Deborah and John were breaking up. John had fallen for an actress named Adrienne Barbeau, who he'd met directing another TV movie right before starting Halloween. John and Adrienne hadn't done anything about it. They didn't even talk about it. But when that TV movie was over, John picked up Adrienne in his brown Cadillac, and he told her he'd fallen in love with her. He asked Adrienne how she felt about it, and she told him that when she found out he had a girlfriend, when she found out about Deborah, she tried hard to find him unattractive. Like, she dwelled on how much she hated that he smoked cigarettes. Well, will you think about it, John said? I don't have a lot of time right now anyway. I mean, I'm in pre-production on Halloween, and of course, Deborah's working on it with me, so... Well, I guess I'm confused too, but I know what I've told you is true. John also told Deborah. It was two weeks before Halloween began filming, but she kept it together on the set. It felt like a divorce, she told someone, but everything else about Halloween was perfect, and Halloween was hers too. On the last day of the Halloween shoot, everyone, even Jamie Lee, spent the morning cleaning up the abandoned house that was the Myers place back in 1978 so that it looked like the nicer Myers place back in 1963, the night of the first murder. They whitewashed the walls, they moved in furniture, and they spent the afternoon practicing the moves of six-year-old Michael Myers, creeping through the front yard into the house, creeping up that staircase, and stabbing his sister. All in one take. The shot is really a giant dance. I mean, it's basically a huge Broadway number with a hundred moving parts. Like, as soon as the camera moves away from the audience in the living room, crew members ran in, turning off lights and moving around furniture before the camera comes back around through the dark kitchen. Even the camera, a new kind of camera called the Panaglide, is wrapped around the camera operator's hips, like they're doing the tango. The hand that grabs a knife is Deborah. She's crouched on the right side of the camera because she was small enough to double for a kid. Deborah also did the stabbing. Tommy carried the blood. The shot is actually not as perfect as it looks. I mean, the camera goes out of focus when the hand grabs a knife, and it cheats a little with a couple trick cuts, like when the mask goes on and it makes the screen narrow to two peephole vignettes like it's an old silent movie. 
Oh, and if we're getting really negative here, let's talk about that hookup between Michael Myers' sister and her boyfriend, because I have timed this. It's a little ridiculous. If you start counting from the time they turn the lights off upstairs to start having sex to the time you see the boyfriend running downstairs putting on his shirt, that is a minute and eight seconds. So, you know, insert joke about selfish high school boyfriends here. Look, Judy, it's really late. I gotta go. Will you call me tomorrow? Yeah, sure. Promise? Yeah. But they had an awesome attention-getting opening shot, even though when the film wrapped, John was a bad boyfriend too. John and Deborah had the wrap party at their apartment, where they'd been living together for years, and the Coupe de Ville's John and Nick and Tommy came out in Michael Myers masks, you know, pale skin, blank stare, crazy hair, and they played guitar in the living room. Is it hard to sing in a Michael mask? We didn't, we didn't keep them on very long. Because, <laughs> yes, the answer is yes, it's hard to sing in a Michael mask. I, I believe I will make that the uh, title of my memoir about Halloween. Four months later, John proposed to Adrian. And two months after that, Halloween premiered with a poster of a pumpkin and a hand and a knife dreamed up by, of course, Erwin Yoblins. I didn't have to ponder it. It just all came. It was all, it was just, it just flowed. Audiences were screaming. So were critics. Here's how John remembers it. But the reviews were just merciless. Merciless. They all blamed me and called me names. You know, and... That isn't something you like. Again, not so much. Film critic David Anson remembers sitting down at a theater with gross, sticky seats, not expecting much from Halloween. He was getting bored with the big-budget studio horror films and all their expensive, satanic bullshit. And then... Sometimes you almost know from from the first shot of a movie (laughs) that you're in the hands of somebody who's like a real filmmaker. And, you know, Halloween was, was, was one of those... one of those times... And Halloween just—it was like a—it was a breath of fresh, putrid air. Uh, it was there was something about the classicism of it and the simplicity of it. I'm a critic, and the feeling David is describing is my favorite feeling ever. When the lights go down and you discover a new talent, when you see this new face, this new director, this new actor, this new film, and you suddenly fall in love. One movie like that makes you forget 50 bad movies. It keeps you from telling yourself that you've seen it all. It makes you excited to tell everyone. So, you know, I remember coming out saying, wow, you know, we definitely have to write about this. Here's what David wrote in his Halloween review for Newsweek. Halloween is a superb exercise in the art of suspense, and it has no socially redeeming value whatsoever. Nasty, voyeuristic, relentless, it aims at nothing but to scare the hell out of you. Its plot comes straight from the pulp primer. A maniacal killer with a knife stalks young women on a Halloween night in a small Illinois town. Impure and simple. It's the waiting that's crucial. Carpenter understands that the apprehension of horror is more unnerving than the actual event. He spares us graphic scenes of blood and gore, but he plays on our expectations of violence like a sadistic maestro. And then David finished his review with this. Halloween is often implausible, but there's nothing cheap about its darkly elegant design. For Carpenter who not only directed but co-wrote the script and composed the Moody score, cult status seems assured. Let me say also that the second best feeling is making a bold claim like that. Cult status seems assured and being right. But David had numbers to back it up because Halloween made a lot of money. $47 million in ticket sales, which I will just go ahead and do the math for you, is like 150 times what Halloween cost. That made Halloween the biggest indie hit ever. 
But money doesn't always guarantee a happily ever after. Is it, is it fair to say that when Halloween became successful, it made the personal relationships harder? Between who? Between everybody. Between you and John. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's the old story. Sore winners. We'll get to the sequels and the lawsuits, but for today, let's end on a happy note. It's 1978. Halloween is massive. Deborah has proven she can produce. John is a newlywed, and he and his band of boys, Tommy and Nick, have just rocked Hollywood. But now that we've covered the mechanics of how Halloween got made, the next Halloween on Mass is going to dig deeper into this question of why Halloween. Why is this guy in a goofy Captain Kirk mask so scary? Maybe Halloween became a hit because the 70s were the decade of Ted Bundy, the Zodiac Killer, the Hillside Strangler, and the Son of Sam. All these cold-hearted killers proving that there really are monsters out there in human disguise, breaking into houses, murdering strangers, making everyone suddenly feel unsafe. The Boogeyman is real. We'll see who's laughing in episode three. Halloween Unmasked is a co-production of The Ringer and Neon Hum Media. It was written and hosted by me, Amy Nicholson, and our producers are Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Mack, and Greta Weber. Production assistance from Kaya McMullen and Karen Navatia, and additional support and a special thanks to Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Juliet Littman. And an ultra-special thanks to you creeps for listening to Halloween Unmasked. <laughs>